Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Q&A. Back to normal this week, but last week was a blast doing the 200th live. So thanks so much to everybody that showed up and participated in that. I really just had such a good time doing it. And the only thing I would have done different is rework my microphone for live, because the way I shoot all these, I do all the audio processing afterwards before it gets sent out, which is why it's much louder than it was live and a little bit clearer. So if you listen to audio only afterwards, then you probably get the good version, but I'll have to rethink it for next time. I love the DDS mic, but for live stuff, I got to position it a little different, or I guess I could just go switch back to my old mic that I still have, the one that was, you know, right up in my face. But either way, lessons learned, but it was still a great time, and I'd like to do it again at some point, and at some point before it hits the 300th Q&A too. So anyway, let's jump in and see what we got for this week. First up, Kelv SYC wants to know how it feels to do 200 of these Q&As. What were the biggest things you got out of doing 200? What were the biggest developments in retro gaming in these 200, in my opinion? Um, how does it feel? <laughs> Exhausting. <laughs> Just kidding, a little bit. Um, the biggest things I got out of it are very, very selfish, and I'll admit that right off the bat, but I love knowing that I'm at least putting a good amount of effort into saying thank you to everybody that supports me. So I, if, you know, if I were a different person, I probably would have thought up a really good way to make it about all of you, but it's just the honest answer to your question, like everybody always gets here. I like knowing that I'm at least making a good effort. I don't always hit it, but I'm trying my best, so that's definitely what I get out of it, is, you know, the interaction with all of you and knowing that I'm trying. Uh, the biggest developments in retro gaming, I mean, there's so many, and there's that's kind of a hard question to answer, because biggest developments behind the scenes for you know any of the devs biggest developments for the end user biggest developments that will have the greatest impact on gaming over a long period of time um and there's just so many i, I couldn't even begin i think fpga gaming i would have to say if i had to pick one i think that would be the one to really talk about because that over the course of time is going to probably be the way a lot of these old consoles are continued to be preserved. So that's a good question, but I think that's more of a question that's worthy of an entire podcast in itself, which maybe I'll do someday. Maybe I'll invite somebody on and, and we'll just kind of chit chat about that. But um, anyway, thanks for your support. Hopefully that was a decent answer. Richard Webster was looking for my opinion on what 32-inch TV to connect their Xbox 360 to. Would I go with a 1080p model or a 768p model, considering that the Xbox 360 can output 768p natively, and most of those games only render at 720p or lower anyway? So I'm going to assume a few things here, uh, but I, I got to talk about the assumptions to answer your question properly. First, I assume the 360 you're using has an HDMI output, and I'm going to assume that both because they're way more common and because of the lag videos that I just showed about how, in many cases, plugging analog into a flat panel would get you more lag than just HDMI. So right off the bat, I'm going to assume that you're talking about the HDMI outputting model of the 360. And I'm also going to assume that you don't already have this panel, because if you did, my answer would very simply be connect your Xbox 360 to all of them and choose whatever you think is best. So assuming that you're just talking about purchasing a 32-inch TV, there's three things that I always think about when choosing a flat panel display. Number one is always lag. And like I always say, you don't need to spend a lot of money to get a low lag display. That cheap TV I use in all my videos was under 300 bucks. It performs great for the money. So that's one of those things where, you know, lag should always come first for gaming, but with some gutches. So 
Next is price. So I always try to recommend people go with the cheaper models unless they specifically are looking for a really good experience. So what's your budget? It's, you know, if you're talking about buying a new panel, it's far easier to find a 1080p, especially because you could probably even find a PC monitor that's up to or close to 32 inches that would look great. So that's something to consider. And then other options. And the best example I could give with that is I have that cheap TV that's about four milliseconds of lag. And then I also have that LG OLED that has like two full frames of lag, a little bit more, eh, about two full frames. And I would always prefer to game on the OLED just because everything else about it is awesome. And the latency doesn't vary. So it is, it is something that I notice now and then, but for the most part, I think it's, you know, a perfectly good experience and just the much higher quality panel really makes it worth it for me. So I would take all of that stuff into consideration. You know, what's the latency on these things? What's the cost and what are you looking to do overall? Um, and cost also has a lot to do with it because you could do something like if you, you know, if you had to hunt down an expensive 700 or 768p panel, which I know sounds weird, by the way, but when you're talking about stuff that's been discontinued, if you can't find them, you might end up paying a premium, whereas you can get a very fast 1080p TV for like nothing these days. So you might even want to consider something like using the analog out of the 360, setting it to 720p or 480p, depending on whatever the game is, and then using like a RetroTINK 5X to scale it to 1080p. And, you know, in that respect, too, you might even want to consider a 1440p monitor and do the same thing, have 720 doubled, and then you could choose sharp or soft scaling. And this is really the conversation that we're going to get into, especially when scalers like the Morph and the OSSC2 come out that have HDMI inputs. Because if that was the case, if those were already released, I would say, well, do you need it? a scaler for anything else. So do you have a whole bunch of other retro consoles that you're scaling, not just this one? If that's the case, seriously look into this because a true digital to digital scale of that image is going to look amazing on, you know, on a different kind of monitor like that. Um, the only other thing too is for whatever reason, I'm remembering a lot of 768p panels I tested having a lot of lag, but I didn't test all of them. I probably tested like 15, 20, but I didn't test all of them. So that's just something that also stands out. So 100% opinions, everything I just said, but my gut's telling me find a cheap 1080p or do something like get a 1440p gaming monitor that's also cheap and kind of go from there. A couple of questions from the Remora. First, they really enjoyed the 200th Q&A and the whatnot streams. Thanks very much. Um, you know, I really like both of them and I love doing the whatnot streams. Those are a lot of fun. I just have to promote them more because I, I want to make sure that the people who need the weird stuff that I'm selling know that I'm selling it. So hopefully it won't get too annoying, but I'm, I'm definitely going to start promoting those a bit more, which reminds me I should probably promote this Friday stream because I have a bunch of really weird stuff. I don't know. Probably can't see it, but there's all piled up behind me ready to go. Uh, but moving on to their actual questions. They keep seeing the replacement Saturn shells sold by Muramasa. However, their Saturn is a Model 1, and these shells are designed after Model 2s. Do I know if that'll cause any issues if they do the swap? I'm not sure if the mounting holes will line up. Uh, you're going to want to check the exact motherboard revision, and then you might want to check with Muramasa. I do know that there's a ton of different Saturn revisions, not just Model 1 and 2. There's some Model 1s that have the power supply mounted in the top case. Like, there's some weird ones out there. So I would open your Model 1, check what revision it is, and then check to see. 
but I don't think it's going to fit. I think you should have uh, low expectations for that. But hey, you might get lucky. Next, if someone's using a GC video product with line doubling disabled and also using a retro tank or something similar, is there any reason to have Swiss Force 480p mode? Yes, because when Swiss forces 480p, you're rendering in 480p. You're not deinterlacing. And it doesn't work on every game, but it works on a ton and it's it works great. It works pretty much like a native 480p game. So, um, you know, unless you're talking about you have everything set up in a switch and you have a RetroTINK 2X that doesn't accept a 480p signal, then you might want to just leave it all in 480i and, and have it all go through your setup. But if your end goal is to go through uh, into a multi-scan monitor or any kind of flat panel TV, going to 480p is is probably a great idea because it renders, not deinterlaces. Um Next, they're trying to decide the best way to handle using the Mega EverDrive Pro with the 32X and Sega CD. They like the look of the Tower of Power, but it locks them out of the Sega CD. Should they loop the video from their Genesis through an Extron crosspoint? So if they want to play the 32X, they can grab video out from it to their TV. And if they want to play Genesis or Sega CD, they can pull the video from the Genesis and just pop the 32X out while leaving power and everything attached. That is an awesomely crazy idea. And I don't know if that'll work. Um, it's probably worth trying, but you'd have to make a bunch of custom cables. Um, you know, the output of Genesis Sync is TTL, so that's not going to be an issue. So when you put that into the 32X, you don't need to worry about dropping voltage. Um, but that's a good question. I don't know if that'll work. Um, it, it seems like it would, but you're going to have to definitely do some custom cabling because then you would need two Genesis 2 to BNC adapters, I guess three, one from the Genesis to the Crosspoint, one from the Crosspoint from the 30, to the 32X, and then one from the 32X to the Crosspoint. So if you do that, let me know, because that's nuts, and I love weird stuff like that. Um, alternatively, they could have it set up so their Model 1 has the 32X and their Model 2 does Sega CD. Either way, they end up using two video inputs and moving the Mega EverDrive around. Which one would you recommend? Um, I would say... It's probably best to have two separate Genesis consoles running. Um, you know, it, it it's my preference to have, like, if I were going to be in that scenario, I would have, like, the Model 2 with the, mm, you know what, whatever works for you, but I would still have two consoles doing that because removing and inserting the 32X, you know, that sometimes is a pain. I don't know about you, but thirty my 32Xs, I have to, you know, remove and replace four or five times before it boots into the game. Like, there's just always issues with my 32Xs, always. So if it were up to me, I think I would leave something as is uh, with the 32X in it and try to never touch it and then have another Genesis for whatever else. Um, for me, I think the setup that I'm going to eventually keep, because I have a lot of Genesis consoles, um, the, what I'm going to end up with is probably like a Model 1 Genesis with a triple bypass that I'm going to use for most things, and then like a CDX with a 32X that I'll use for 32X and Sega CD discs. Um, but I already own those, so if you were to pick that up now, that'd be very expensive. So I would go with the two the two consoles. I think that might actually be an easier workflow, but if you want to try the weird one, just please let me know how it works, because that's kind of neat. 
Jared Breland wants to follow up on a previous discussion about podcast ads and why it's not easy to create an ad-free feed. We wanted to reply back with a couple additional thoughts and possible supporter benefits. Um, I'm all ears, always. I might not get a chance to do all of these, but you know, keep them coming, so let me read through what Jared's got. First, as an alternative to an ad-free feed, have I considered adding chapter marks so anyone with a compatible podcast app can easily skip past the ad if they're not interested? Also useful uh, for easily skipping sections in the Q&A that might not have be particular interest. Doesn't seem like it should be difficult since you already include timestamps in the descriptions. I don't know the difference. Um, I'm not being sarcastic or shitty. I'm, I'm being literal. I don't I don't understand the difference between adding the times in and the chapter marks. Is that something I could do through Anchor? Is that something I have to program in? Uh, if it's not a ton of work, I'll definitely do it. Um, you know, also, you know, it's one of those things where everybody skipped past ads they don't like or ads that are the same thing over and over. Everybody has their favorite podcaster where, you know, it's that Casper mattress ad again, and you already have a mattress, so you're not going to buy one. Or maybe, heck, maybe you even used their promo code and bought one of those stupid Casper mattresses. And so now you're just hitting fast forward on all of them. Like, I get it. I absolutely get that there is a need for people to skip those. Um, but it is something that, like, you know, just keep it in your mind that these sponsors are going to be the only way that I get to keep doing this for another hundred. So, you know, I mean that with respect. I just, I got to be honest. Um, two, speaking of timestamps, they notice they don't factor in ad times. So if you have a timestamp for something that started at five minutes, but lead with a 30 second ad, then jumping to that timestamp puts us 30 seconds before the expected content. Now I think you're talking about YouTube ad stamps. Um, I think, and if that's the case, then that's not really up to me. I could put those chapter marks anywhere I want. And if there's ads on the video, you're going to be forced to watch the ad before watching the video period, no matter where you skip to. So if that's what you mean, there's nothing I could do about that. I could, you know, I could try to just disable all ads, but the, you know, I, I just, I don't think that's the right move at the moment. And uh, not related to ads, would it be possible to provide a full content RSS feed for your supporters instead of just article summaries? Uh, I'm not really sure what you mean from that either. Um, provide a full content RSS feed for supporters instead of... I'm sorry, I just I don't understand at all what, what, that, what you mean by that. And once again, I'm not being shitty. I just I don't really get it. Um, the ads really aren't a huge deal, so hopefully this doesn't come across the wrong way. Not at all. Uh, just trying to think ways you could provide extra value for supporters, which in turn would hopefully encourage more direct support. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm all yours, but um, I, I just, you know, I, I'm not sure if any of the stuff you applied to other than the uh, the chapter marks. I, I'm not sure if anything else I could actually do to, you know, or to make that happen. So if you want to let me know, uh, you know like send me a link to anchor and, and chapter marks, maybe I could try to add those in and see, but you know, it's also respectfully, anything that adds a lot more time takes away from something else that I'm doing. And I'm at the point and I've been at the point for a while where every one thing I do means something else has to stop. So if it's one of those things that's going to take another 25 minutes to add chapter marks in because I got to like do it manually or something, then that means that, you know, a, an article isn't going to get written or written or something like that. So, you know, 
I just hopefully this is coming out okay. I, I think your your points and your questions were all perfectly polite, and I don't. I I think it's great that you're thinking about this, and I appreciate it. And on the flip side, I hope you don't think my responses are douchey. I just you know I'm just being honest. So uh, you know, so I guess this is a weird one. Hopefully this came out all right, Jared. I, you know, no hard feelings. <laughs> Adam Adamant wants to know how they go about identifying clone hardware versus random resellers. They don't like the idea of rewarding people who take designs. Um, so this is a very tricky one to answer. I'll skip to the end and then I'll go back and explain it. So if people don't want to hear the, the bullshit that comes next, they could just skip right to the next section. But the easiest way is to go through sites and people who kind of know what they're talking about. So I doubt you'll find a link to a clone anywhere on retro RGB. Um, if you do let me know, I'll fix that. <laughs> but you know, it, it's, it's one of those things where you just have to kind of know who's making the recommendation. And if not, I would ask around, you know, jump on a discord server, jump on, you know, so any kind of social media with people that, you know, in the scene and just say, Hey, you know, is this legit? Is this not legit? And I would try to do it on the DL as much as you can because of what I'm about to talk about. So it's basically just knowing where to get your recommendations from and, and kind of going from there. And it's one of those things where even if somebody listening is like, I'm not going through your site because you have affiliate links and, you know, I don't want to support your cookies and beer habit. That's fine. Open up an in private browser, post the link, delete the affiliate link, and then copy whatever's left, put it in your real browser and buy it. I don't really, at the end of the day, I'd much rather see people buy non-clones and forget about the affiliate links than make a few pennies off of a sale. So um, go to sites like that. Go to people who have YouTube channels and stuff who you trust to, to not link to stuff like that. But the biggest problem, believe it or not, is just human nature and trolling. Because, and I'll use a few examples. Like I went after one very notorious clone company that was doing such blatant things like ordering products from another company and having it shipped to their company name and company address. So if I was like Bob International, I would buy your product, you know, and the, the buyer would be Bob International. And then they would clone that. And then two weeks later, put a picture up on social media and say, look at our new product. And it's an obvious clone. It's the exact same thing, but with their name on it instead of the original company's name. And, you know, they're so, they even admitted to cloning one product and basically said they'll only dump it off on AliExpress, which, you know, it's, you, so it's the same thing. You're still stealing from the original creator. And then when I kept calling them out because they kept cloning and selling that stuff, they just came after me like, Bob's lying. He's just jealous because I don't fucking know whatever those morons say. And, the problem with that is people, humans will always believe a charismatic liar over just somebody telling the truth. And on top of that, all social media is filled with mostly people who are level-headed adults who don't have time for this bullshit. So I could totally imagine most people seeing that company's tweets like, this is bullshit, you're a clone company, shut up, you're not, you know, Bob didn't do anything this time. But they don't have time to respond because they have lives and hobbies and families. So who does have time to respond? The trolls with none of those things. And that's every time I've called people out or companies out on that, that's what always comes back at me is a bunch of people like that or a bunch of the bottom feeders who always just take the opposite opinion of something because they know it's the easiest way to get attention. I don't think they're a clone company. I think Bob's just whatever. So that's why you don't hear a lot more people call out cloners. Um, even in the scene, right? There was one person that is just notorious behind the scenes for cloning boards. Not only do they clone to this day, 
there was a couple times where they even cloned the revision number of a board, and then they even sold them with the capacitors backwards to make matters even worse. So, but you know, as soon as I call them out on it, it's Bob's an elitist gatekeeper who's just trying to keep my designs away from his friends, and it's like everybody in the scene knows you're a liar and a cloner. But everybody who doesn't, who's now inside the dev scene, is going to hear your cries and just think like, "Wow, maybe it's real." So it, it's people don't want to go up against cloners and people like that. Even the other day, somebody I know verbally bashed, uh, you know, a very popular influencer for retweeting a clone product, and I, I don't think they handled it properly. But the point still stood that nobody got it. Nobody understood that the reason that they were upset was because it was a clone product. Everybody was like, you know, you're just mad that an influencer is posting their affiliate link. No, that's how you make that's how you make money to pay your bills. That was the issue was that it was a clone or maybe that that one wasn't a clone, but the company was a clone. I don't really remember. I thought that, you know, they were kind of being an asshole about that. But it point stands in that anytime anybody opens their mouth and calls somebody out on this stuff, they've now entered their name in the ring to be a target for any of this stuff. And that's why most people don't. And that's why sometimes I got to just sit there and eat the shit that people throw at me because I just, I, sometimes I can't sit on the sidelines. Sometimes it's just too much. And it's like, you got to know this person's a cloner. You got to know this person's a liar. And it always comes back at me. There's always just tons of bullshit to deal with. And sometimes I got to just do it. So didn't mean to go off on a rant about that, but I wanted to answer honestly, because you know, it's one of those things where it's like, all right, well, let's put together a list of all the cloners. It's like, oh, that starts to cross a very weird line of like these lists of who not to use. Like that's, it's kind of gross to me. I wouldn't, you know, I, I wouldn't want to do that. I wouldn't be comfortable with it. I'd rather take the high road and just link to the good stuff. And hopefully that's a statement that says if it's not linked on the website, the most likely chance is that one of us just didn't have time to add the link. So that's, you know, hopefully I'm clear about that as well. Just because something is not on retro RGB doesn't mean it's a clone or a bad product. I would say 90% of the stuff that's not linked on there is not linked because we just haven't had time to figure out the best place to put it. But also think like if it's not on retro RGB, why? Is it that nobody had time to add it and then maybe look into it a little bit and just say, hey, anybody know this product? Is this cool? Is this board a clone? Are the capacitors backwards? I'm going to explode inside my PC engine. Like one of those things. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, let's see all the shit I get in the comments just for saying this, but at least that was an honest answer. One more from Adam. Does the RetroTINK 5X have some kind of auto shutoff when it hasn't seen an input signal for a few minutes? They ask because their TV has a timeout to shut off when it haven't, hasn't seen an HDMI input signal for 10 minutes, but the RetroTINK 5X prevents that timeout from happening because it always sends either the, the signal from the console or just a blue screen. I'm not sure, but I would ask Mike. Uh, and I would guess that if it's something very easy to add, Mike would probably just add it eventually. And if it's not, it probably won't get added unless a lot of people ask for it. But this is one of those things that you could solve with workflow. Uh, almost every one of the consoles that you would be putting through the retro tank, you have to manually power off anyway. So leave the tank remote next to it and power off your console, hold the power button and you're good to go. Um, but, uh, you know, it's it's a question worth asking, and I'm sure that would help for a lot of people's setups. So for the short term, solve it with workflow, and then ask Mike maybe and see if that's something he'd be willing to add. 
Daniel Adato has an original model PlayStation with a working disk drive, and they'd like to install an X station in it, but also want to retain CD functionality, because they would also like to incorporate it into their music setup as a pretty cool CD player. Do I know of any setups that would retain both functionality? They understand the SIO exists, but they would rather use an ODE that just works and they wouldn't need to fiddle with. Um, agreed on that one. So your choices, if you want something today, right now for that functionality, I would actually say pick up an X station and a second PlayStation. That's probably going to be the cheapest way to go about doing this. Maybe you could find one with a beat up case. Maybe you could find one that's an exact replica. So now you have spares. If you ever need a spare power supply, motherboard, CD drive, whatever, maybe pick up one with a dead CD drive and a broken case that you could start out doing this with. But that might be the cheapest solution overall, believe it or not. Um, there is supposedly something coming similar to the Saturn switcher that allows you to set the X station next to the optical drive inside your PlayStation one. But I believe the global part shortage has slowed that down to, you know, maybe not even being able to release this year. Please don't quote me on that. That is just a general statement of the part shortage is killing a ton of projects. So, you know, that is coming sometime. So it's my opinion that, you know, SIOs are fine. A lot of people have them and love them. And I totally understand why you might want to go that route. And it's available. If they're in stock, you could do that right now. And that would all work. But I think overall, buying a second PlayStation or just waiting until the the switcher thing comes out or just installing an X station now and then saving your CD-ROM drive for later, I think approaching it that way might be best and you just have to choose whatever you want for your setup. Um, so, you know, buy the X station now, just wait all together or buy a second PlayStation and kind of deal with that and then end up with a spare at some point. But I mean, you could probably find the same model PlayStation with a dead CD drive and a beat ass case for very cheap. So definitely don't just dismiss that right away because I think that might be the cheapest solution for the short term to have everything integrated so that you could just swap, you know, swap the cables between them whenever you need to and leave whichever one you use the most plugged in on a regular basis. Hector Santana wants to know if I have any experience with an RGB MUX board for RGB modding CRTs, and I don't. Any of the ones that I've done, I always either hand-wired or Jose hand-wired for me or a combination of both or something like that. Um, I looked at the link. It seems cool. I just, I can't comment on it only because I just haven't used it. In theory, it should probably work fine, but CRT modding is something that's obviously kind of dangerous and you don't want to end up hurting your signal or, or mixing signals together. But in theory, it seems like it should be fine. Um, but I think the installation might end up being more important than the board that's used. Uh, at, at just the first glance that I looked at it, it seemed like the, and I mean this with respect, it seems like the board is just a way to simplify some of the hand wiring. So you still have to go into the jungle chip and do, you know, all of the, the stuff there the same way you normally would. So if that's the case, then it would be safe. It, you just have to pay attention to the RGB mod. But this is something that I'm definitely going to be jumping back into at some point this year because I want to try this. I want to try another one like it. And then there's a completely different way to mod RGB mod CRT now. And I want to try that as well, just to see if there's an advantage, if it's all the same, if there's a better way to do it. So that's my goal for the end of this year is to de you know definitely have some kind of video showing the new methods. And 
a lot of it could just be simplification boards like this, where it does this. And once again, I mean this in a nice way. It does the same thing we've always done. It just saves a whole bunch of steps and has everything contained on one board. So, you know, sorry, I don't have a solid answer to your question, but hopefully I could, uh, you know, it, it, I guess the best way to answer it is jump on that forum or anywhere else people discuss RGB modding CRTs and uh, post the model of the CRT you want to mod and see if anybody has already done it to that one uh, with that board and see what their results were like. And if not, you know, do you feel comfortable being the first person to try it? That's totally up to you. But I think that would probably be the best way to go about it if you were interested. Portugeek has two questions. I like that name. I'm going to call Stika that. Uh, first, they think the new transparent console shells look awesome, but they would love to see solid color variants. Have I heard of any future plans to release solid color runs? So I don't want to speak for Retro Gamer Store or Muramasa or any of the places making these, but I can speculate a little bit as long as, you know, we all know this is just me speculating. I think the issue is sales of current stuff, because in order to make those at such a high quality at a low quantity, they have to be very expensive. And it's that whole chicken and egg scenario of do they make 5,000, cut the price in half and hope that they sell? Eh, I, I wouldn't. I definitely wouldn't just in case. So they have to sell out the batches that were already made. And then I think they can go back now that the tool is made, now that the production quantities are there, and now they could say something like, okay, you know, let's do a run of 100 in solid black or the exact original color of the console or whatever it is. Um, so it, it's kind of rough. You know, anytime you do something really high quality, it's going to be very expensive. So you either need tons and tons of people to buy it, or you just need people willing to pay the price and kind of wait. So... Uh, yeah, I, I haven't heard any solid plans for future color runs, but it's possible as long as we get the word out and get enough of these sold as is. Second, they have a RetroTink 5X and love what it does for their component connections, but do I know of any products or if Mike has any plans to release a device that could take the HDMI signal from the Rad 2X cables and upscale it, similar to what the RetroTink 5X does? Um, so, yes and no. So I'm going to answer this question two ways. First, if you're just looking to take an HDMI device and plug it into the RetroTINK 5X, you're going to need any basic digital to analog converter. I have them linked. Uh, I'll put a direct link for this question as well, just to make it easier. Uh, with the part shortage, I've heard some people complain that the quality is varying on those, but I'm leaving the links up because there's no alternative now. We're at a global part shortage. Buy it from uh, Amazon or a place with good return policies in case you end up getting a bum one and then buy a different brand. But, you know, until there's solid alternatives, the links are staying because I'm still getting reports that, you know, people are getting good quality versions, just not everybody, unfortunately. So, yeah, get one of those cheap digital to analog converters. The ones I link to add no lag at all. And then make sure to set your original console to a resolution that the RetroTINK 5X can handle, which is pretty much you know, any analog resolution. So 480p, 720p, 1080p, it could handle all of those. Um, so that is the answer to how you would get HDMI into the Tink. There's also new scalers coming like the Morph and the OSSC2 that will have direct HDMI inputs. But to go back and address your RAD2X cable scenario. So this is kind of interesting in that you've just taken your console's analog signal and converted it to digital 480p where it was line doubled. And you could 
plug that into one of those cheap DACs into the RetroTINK 5X. But I think what would actually be a better solution is to sell those Rad 2Xs and then use that money to get component video or SCART cables, or I guess even S-Video. You know, the, if your console supports it, S-Video is still a great signal. Um, or for the short term, just use any composite cables you have laying around. It's just that the way the Rad 2X works, it completely and totally accomplishes the goal of I have a console, I want to plug it on my flat panel, I don't want it to look terrible, and I don't want it to be filled with lag, so Rad 2X is the solution to that at the moment. So going line doubled to 480p that way, then back to analog, you're going to lose some color information because of the way the Rad 2X scales. There's a lot of little gutches in there that don't really apply when you're just plugging the Rad 2X into a monitor. So that's kind of how I would approach it. So kind of take a step back and look at your total setup. Did you buy the Rad 2X because it was the easiest solution? If so, then perfect. It, they accomplished their goal. Now's the time to upgrade. You know, you have the RetroTINK 5X, sell those on eBay or something or whatnot, you know, get uh, get yourself some analog video cables and now you're done. You've upgraded and everything's awesome. But on the flip side, did you buy those Rad 2Xs because you have a bunch of different consoles that you want to bring back and forth to friends' houses and you really want an easy way to connect that to a digital monitor or maybe you do gaming tournaments or something like that? then you kind of need to hold on to those unless you want to take, you know, also bring the RetroTINK 5X with you, which a lot of people are totally fine. I'm just saying if the purpose was to have a small, cheap, easy, relatively cheap considering, you know, device to do that, then I, I might consider just saving up slowly, keeping those for when you travel, and then, you know, maybe buy a cheap S-Video cable now, and then as you save up, invest in good RGB cables as they become available and stuff like that, so... You know, it's probably not the exact answer you were hoping for, but hopefully I, I cleared up some of this stuff. And, uh, you know, they're all good options. Now you're facing the choice of what path to choose. But the way the things that you're talking about, they're all good ways to go about doing it. So it's not like you have some, you know, some five frame for lag knockoff cable. Everything you got is good. You just got to choose your how you want to get it done. Sal recently discovered that their old N64 memory card has lost its data. They got a forever pack, but they're finding that a lot of their most treasured game saves are actually saved on the cartridge. Is there any way to back those saves up to get them onto their EverDrive? So the easiest way to do that might not be what you're looking for, and it might not be the most cost-effective, but getting some kind of cartridge ripper would do the trick. Tito did a video about this one a while back. Somebody was nice enough to hand make me one and sell it to me at a very good price. However, I've been so busy, I haven't even used it. I've been leaving it right here in front of my monitor, which is why it was uh, so easy to pick up. And it just, I, I haven't had time. I'll get to it. But price is something you're going to want to consider. So this has the N64 slot. I'll leave a link to Tito's video. Definitely check it out. So I don't think they're available right now unless you make your own or if, like me, you find somebody that bought the parts to make a couple and have an extra. But even assuming it was available, um, while the price is very fair for what you're getting, and I'll probably use this thing once a month forever, the price starts to become expensive if you're looking at it from the perspective of, I have my 10 favorite games that I want to back up the saves. And that's it. So if that's the case, if you want to move from your original cartridges to your EverDrive and just manage all your save files there, you might want to look into anybody in the community near you that has something like this, has a modded Retron 5, or those don't play N64 games, but any any kind of cartridge ripper that, you know, that they might be able to help. 
I don't know if there's any kind of homebrew way to do that simply because you would have to boot the cart into a homebrew solution, which would mean you would have to have a different cart plugged into your N64. So I don't really know of any other ways to do that. So if anybody has any options, if I'm forgetting something, which happens all the time, no problem there, please let me know in the comments. You know, I'll pin the comment if there's an easy solution out there. But I think you just need to decide, do I just need all of my save games backed up and then I'll just always play them on the EverDrive? If that's the case, try to find somebody in the community that has one of these, that knows how to use them and can safely back up your save game file. Or if this is something where you're like, no, I want to use my original cartridges. I want to back up the saves, though, to make sure that they always have them, then buying something like this might work because then you could just always back up your saves and then always restore them back to the cart if you want to. And it also, this particular one has, uh, I believe this is SNES on top, Genesis. I think you could do Master System games with a converter through there. Um, and then this is N64, and then there's even a converter that allows you to plug NES games into the SNES slot. And remember, this is just for ripping the ROMs. This isn't going to allow you to play NES games on a Super Nintendo. But yeah, so I would just look into what solution you want. But also check the comments if there's another solution out there that I'm missing. Hopefully somebody could step up and uh, remind me that I forgot about it. Stephen Faust recently found their old PAL SNES, PAL Jaguar, and NTSC N64, and now they're getting back into using original hardware and are going to be looking into ROM carts, scalers like the RetroTank 5X, etc. But now they have the problem of mixed signal types and how to play all of those different games. They also plan on playing mostly 60Hz games, but still want the ability to play 50Hz. So it's not even that you could just get a ROM cart and play everything through there. You need to compensate for the different frequencies and speeds that the games run at. And I think the easiest way to go about doing this is to pick up extra consoles. Now, this is just my opinion. There's a few different ways you could do this, like the mentioned Super CIC mod and the region modded with DFO Mega Drive type of thing. I just think your total setup should dictate whatever the final solution is. So for me personally, unless you could make your own boards and do all the work yourself, I think it'd be far cheaper to get a Super Nintendo and a Genesis that completes everything that you need, or I guess even two Genesis consoles. And you could get something like, you know, if you had the room for it, it might be a really neat setup to have your PAL SNES and then maybe a Japanese SNES Junior. You would have to slap an RGB mod in it if you wanted that, but those are cheap and easy to do. And now you have two different styles of the case. Or maybe you have your PAL SNES, but you want the look of the Japanese Super Famicom or something like that. Either way, you could really kind of go through and pick and choose. And I think you could do it for cheaper than buying one console with the mods pre-installed or having your existing console modded. So if you have the space for multiple, I think it's the cheapest way to do it. And I think it's also a really good way to have kind of a neat look to your setup. Now, I wouldn't even worry about power because you could use those triad power supplies. Um, there's international and North American versions. They work great with these consoles. I'll leave a link to anybody that needs them. But I think that's a really neat way to approach the setup. And depending on how much money you want to spend and how crazy you want to get into this, you might even do something like pick up the PAL Mega Drive you had as a kid uh, or always wanted as a kid, but then look at one of the weird ones that's out there. So maybe you pick up an NTSC Genesis 3 and or, or maybe you you know look for the Model 2 or find something nuts like a CDX or an XI or something like that. Totally up to you. So that's where I would start with this. Um, but 
on the flip side, if you have a tight area, like maybe you have a CRT in a corner and you want to build like a little retro gaming setup and you don't have the room for all of those, then yeah, I would contact a local modder that has experience doing region stuff. Cause uh, if not, then, you know, it's, it, there's a lot of little gutches when it comes to region and speed modding that not a lot of people might know about. I'm not even an expert in it cause I don't have a lot of pal knowledge, but I would contact somebody that does look to have those mods done and kind of go from there. And it's really up to you, but you know, modding consoles can get expensive. Uh, if anything goes wrong, you've lost the console. There's a lot more risk. Whereas just going online and picking up a used console only, you know, like if you already have all the cables and adapters for your Super Nintendo, you could pick up a console only, uh, just Japanese one for real cheap and then get whatever cable it comes with just to start yourself out. You know, maybe a cheap PAL um, or a cheap ass video cable, whatever, just to get started and then kind of go from there. So totally up to you, but my gut always leans towards multiple consoles unless your scenario or budget doesn't allow it. I know the Jaguars are getting very expensive, and I'm not sure if there's a region mod for those, but if it is, it might be much easier to do than, or much cheaper than getting another console, certainly not easier. So I would kind of look at the total setup and decide from there. Uh, and if you have any other questions, just let me know, and hopefully I can point you in the right direction. Before I go, just a quick reminder that I'm doing another WhatNot stream this week, Friday at 6.30 p.m., so when this goes public tonight at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time, New York City Time, and it's going to be focused on equipment creators might use. So this is kind of a neat one, just if you want to hear some behind-the-scenes stuff about the different ways and tools I've used to record, and if you want to pick up some of the used stuff that I've had over the years that's been great to me, but um, I'm just clearing out everything extra I possibly can. So if you're into this stuff, definitely check it out. If you're not on WhatNot yet, please use the link because you get $10 off your first purchase. So I always want to try to save people money. So retrorgb.link forward slash WhatNot and all of the info you need to know is there. Uh, pretty much everything I'm selling is listed there. Uh, there's also a link to the actual WhatNot page so you could see everything that I listed. As usual, it's weird and different. And this one's really going to be focusing on teaching people about some of the equipment I've used, um, even telling why I'm selling it. None of it's broken. I just have doubles of things or I've changed my methods or I just don't do certain things anymore so I don't use them. But there's a lot of weird stuff here and I think it could be educational and fun. And if you are a creator of any kind that could use this stuff, I think you would definitely want to join even just for some fun knowledge, but maybe to pick some stuff up too. So hopefully I will see you all there. Well, that's it for this time. If you're new to these Q&As, ask any question you have wherever it is that you support in the latest Q&A post, because the way these services work, I can't really figure out what's a new question on an old post. And as you saw here today, I just kind of like scrolling through and answering them all in real time while it's all fresh in my head and you get the most uh, real and honest answer possible, even though sometimes my answers aren't the best, I try my best. So any questions you have at all, fire away. And if for whatever reason I miss it, please either contact me directly or re-ask. Sometimes questions come in after I'm done recording, like this is Thursday afternoon. So if you asked a question after this, it'll get totally missed. So please let me know. It's never intentional. And as always, thank you to everybody who supports in any way possible, because it's you who's keeping all this stuff going. So thank you all very much, and I will see you next week.